Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Priyadar Shini Basu. Uh, she's a research associate at Oregon State University. We're going to talk about apiculture, I guess the keeping of bees and pollination biology. So uh, Priya, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you, Richard, for inviting me to the show. Yeah. Well, tell me about your work with, with uh, bees, honeybees. So I've been working with bees since about, uh, I would say, 2010. My PhD looked into mostly how pesticides impact uh, wild honeybee populations in the Indian subcontinent. Currently, I am working on the impacts of pesticides on bees as well as the impacts of poor nutrition on bees. I am a postdoc at the Oregon State University Honeybee Lab. And the OSU Bee Lab not only looks at these two factors, such as uh, pesticides and poor nutrition, but we also do a lot of work with uh, mites and uh, parasites, pollination services. I mean, just, you know, as far as you can think about bees. Oh, so what are you studying right now? What's your research about? So currently, I am looking at uh, two important factors. So as we are aware that what we call it uh, is that it's four P's of uh, threads that, you know, that affect our bee pollinators, pesticide, poor nutrition, pests, and parasites. So I am looking at two P's specifically, pesticides and poor nutrition. I also look at how these two factors may be interconnected with each other. So I look at what are the important macro and micronutrients, how they can help improve bee pollinator health, I look at what are the different pesticides, their formulations, uh, their tank mixes, the fungicides, how they can impact uh, bee health as well as colony health, and if there is a way that these two stressors are interconnected. Okay, so have you found any connections so far, or what, uh, what are you imagining that you might find? What's your hypothesis? So, uh, I mean, there are two interesting aspects to what we are doing. The first is, uh, when it comes to nutrition, a lot of uh, research focus for, you know, the last uh, many decades have been on macronutrients, which are mostly carbohydrates that bees can source from nectar and uh, proteins that bees source from pollen. So most of the research has been on carbohydrates and uh, proteins. It's only more relatively recently that now uh, there are a few research labs like ours who are looking into micronutrients, such as phytosterols we look into. So when you think of phytosterols, they are very, uh, I would say, similar to, you know, uh, it's a form of lipid. Uh, for humans, you would think of cholesterol. Similarly, for plants, uh, we call them phytosterols. So each bee species has a very unique need for phytosterols, as well as they have their very unique way to metabolize phytosterols. What we are currently looking into is that how we can incorporate phytosterols in honeybee diets so that we can sustain bee colonies and ensure there are successive generations. And uh, it is very critical because of all the phytosterols that can be available to bees, honeybees 
critically require only one type of phytosterol. We, uh, we call it 24-methylene cholesterol. You need it in uh, critical amounts in bee diets so that uh, these phytosterols, they can help produce insect hormones. They, can, uh, they produce important hormones such as molting hormones. They help maintain cell membrane integrity in honeybees. So what we are trying to look at is that how much of this phytosterol, uh, what are the different sources from where we can get this phytosterol for bees and how we can add it to bee diets. Either where, where do bees get it naturally? So bees can source it naturally from uh, plant pollens. So that is also something that we are looking into. We are currently trying to build the first database of plant uh, sterols in North America. So what we are trying to do is we are trying to collect as many different types of pollen that we can from different crop and uh, non-crop forage plants. And we are looking at the phytosterol spectrum that's available in these pollen sources. We are also looking at uh, proteins and metabolites, lipids and other micronutrients. But phytosterol database, I believe this would be the very first that we are trying to build for all of North America. So do you know where bees get it from or are you just guessing that they get it from certain pollen or do you know which which plants they get it from in abundance because that would correlate really seasonally you know if they're doing almonds first and pollinating those coming out of the winter you know do they have the highest phytosterol levels in almonds or does it happen later in the year oh no absolutely so uh we did test quite a few plant species and a lot of them have very rich uh 24 methylene cholesterol profiles. So we know for sure that uh, honeybees can source these from plant sources. Another thing that we are now trying to do is that we, as you mentioned almonds, we did test almond pollen and we found that it is really, it's a great source for uh, phytosterols for bees. So what we are now trying to do is, uh, I mean, there are, you know, in, in the US, for example, commercial pollination, it is very intensive. Bees are trucked around the country to pollinate many different types of crops throughout the year. The time when they are not pollinating any crops, they are kept in holding yards with or without access to natural forage. So that is what we are trying to look at. If a bee colony is shipped or it's moved around to a cropping system, what are the pollen uh, nutrients available in that crop which the bee is pollinating? If that particular crop pollen does not have enough nutrients for the bee colony, what else can we plant around it as supplemental forage so that the bees can uh, have access to sort of like a diversity of these nutrients available? Because that is what we mostly see for, uh, you know, when we think about nutritional stress, it is either a lack of pollen abundance, a lack of pollen diversity, or a lack of pollen quantity. So that is something that we are seriously looking into. Yeah, if people uh, drive bees around to pollinate specific crops, I mean, how are they going to get any diversity and do they need that diversity in what they're pollinating and what they're getting nectar from? Absolutely. In, in the wild, how would they have done it before? I guess they would have to forage and there would just be a random assortment of different different plants around until people started uh, you know, engaging in agriculture. Right. So right. what would be a suggestion? Like what, what would grow in and amongst or adjacent to almonds or blueberries or tomatoes that would... Uh, that would help bees, you think? So uh, there are a lot of agencies who have these planting recommendations. For example, for the California almonds, Project APSM, they have Seeds for Bees project uh, where you can source certain non-crop supplemental forage plants. There are also recommendations from USDS, from Xerces Society, from uh, 
from other different organizations about uh, planting recommendations. I think uh, mostly it would depend on which part in which state you are from, if there are any restrictions to planting certain things, you know, around you, uh, what grows best in the season that you're looking at. For example, if I give you uh, an example from Oregon, where we are in, so we are in the Willamette Valley. Our research apiary houses about anywhere between 80 to 100 hives. They have good source of pollen and nectar flow throughout the year, except mid and late summer. So that is when we try and uh, provide sort of like extra pollinator forage for them surrounding the hives. So we plant a lot of, uh, you know, bachelor buttons. We plant phacelia, we plant clovers, we plant sunflowers. So we uh, try and plant as many diverse types of uh, forage that we can make available to the bees. Another thing that I must specify here is that when we talk about, uh, you know, what plants to have for bees to forage on, we often look at the relative attractiveness. It could be an ornamental plant. It could be a, a wild plant. It could be a weed, for example, dandelions. So we often look at the relative attractiveness. So what we are now trying to do is actually look at the science behind it. We are trying to see why is a bee attracted to a flower? Is it because, you know, that particular flower patch is closest to it? Or is it because it's the shape of the flower, it's the color, it's the smell? Or is it purely based on the nutritional quality of that flower because of which a bee preferentially forages on it more than the others? So a lot of these factors go into it. But I would say there are some fantastic resources available based on what your climatic conditions are, which state you're in and what your local restrictions are. I think you would find a great source of uh, plants available. Well, how much forage is needed? You know, do you... Is it like one plant per bee in a colony or how can you estimate how much is needed? Um, a lot of it, I mean, I think what you're trying to ask is uh, probably sort of like a, you know, what we talk about as stocking rates when it comes to commercial pollination, like how many hives in this area or uh, how much plant resources are, are available for one particular hive. I think it mostly depends on the seasonal physiology of the hive, the colony needs and how much of the surrounding area is available. For example, I would say for one particular hive, I mean, if you have about, uh, say, 0.25 acre of uh, forage available, I think that's a good place to start from. Because a hive, it consistently need pollen as well as nectar. But then the more diverse resources that you provide to the colony, the better it is for the colony. But how are you able to communicate to, uh, you know, growers of almonds or other plants? All right, you need to allocate 5% of your field to other forage, you know, and would they want to do it or would they want to just maximize profit and say, well, we're not going to provide any extra forage. We don't care. We just want this stuff pollinated. Oh, uh, no. I mean, I must say that, you know, like uh, bees and crops, they are mutually inclusive. Growers and beekeepers, they actually work hand in hand and in partnership to help uh, not only uh, serve the pollination purposes, but also help save the bee colony itself. So the growers are very aware and uh, they have been partnering with the beekeepers. So what we try and do is, you know, we try and see what an ideal stocking rate might be for a particular crop. Uh, if the bees are bringing back in enough resources from the crop itself, then how much of an area that we can allocate for that particular field site as supplemental forage. Sometimes what uh, we advise the growers and growers often do is that they plant these supplemental forage before so that these plants, they bloom right before the crops bloom. 
So when the bees are brought back in, for example, in almonds, I mean, bees are forced out of hibernation and then they're brought in by uh, end of January or early February, right before the almonds bloom. So there are certain plants which can bloom before the almonds so that the bees have something to forage on. And then after the almonds are gone, when the hives are still there, ready to be shipped or ready to be moved, the growers have also staggered planting of other uh, forage so that you know there are more uh, there are more plants blooming right after the almonds are out of bloom so this is something that we can do we can stagger the blooming phase so it's not too much of a hardship on the uh, you know the, the farmers to uh, to include these crops along mm -hmm. with their crop to include these plants these forage materials no there are some considerations uh, which, uh, depending on the crop, again, we need to think of. For example, if you're trying to have a cover crop between, you know, rows of uh, sort of your main commercial crop, if you're trying to have uh, the spaces in between uh, some other form of forage, then another thing that we need to consider is like, you know, what pesticides are being sprayed, what time the flowers are in bloom, and uh, when potentially the bees might be visiting the flowers. I think keeping all of these in consideration, it's it's not going to be difficult for the growers to be able to provide just that extra bit of forest that bees need. Well, what benefit would there be to a grower? Any like, you know, how do you communicate the benefit to them? So uh, for the growers, it would be, for example, if you have a healthy colony in your uh, orchard or in your farm, you have better pollination. So, uh, for example, if you bring in a colony and you provided good resources because the colony is expanding, right? Uh, for example, in almonds, when the bees are brought back in, the bees have already started, the queen has started laying. So the bees have already started rearing new batches of brood. So if you provide them with the good sources of pollen and good sources of nectar, the hive is healthy, the brood is healthy, you have new generation of bees that are coming up, which are stronger. So you will have stronger pollination that this particular colony will render. Well, to the, to the grower, what does stronger pollination mean? Does that mean that they'll have a bigger yield of crops? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. More uh, so for bees to effectively pollinate a crop, the growers would definitely see larger uh, seed sets. Okay, so one idea I guess is to determine which uh, which type of pollen is most beneficial and see if you could uh, I guess release that into hives directly. Would that be a good solution or is it better to do it just naturally by planting these uh, these high pollen crops near, um, you know, the pollinated crops, the desired ones. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I mean, these are two uh, great ways to do it. So one way would be you trap for pollen. So for example, you have a hive, you know, in this particular uh, season, you have enough pollen and nectar coming into the hive naturally. So you can set out pollen traps and you can collect some pollen and you can store it in your freezer so that you can use it to make a pollen patty during pollen dirt. You can also add some of that pollen into the commercial protein supplements that are available in the market and you can add natural pollen to it. You can also plant forage around your hives to you know, let the bees have a natural flow of uh, pollen and nectar. So these are three ways that you can definitely uh, ensure that your bees are getting enough nutrients. Has anyone tried to, you know, open up a beehive and spritz in some pollen or dump some pollen in there or put a patty in there? And is oh, that yes. too invasive or does that work? No, no, this is something that usually you have it as a beekeeping practice. So uh, what you do is, for example, if you imagine a hive, you uh, think of like whether one box or two boxes, doesn't matter. 
but when you open the lid you can form a pollen patty and you can just place it on the frames you know like the top bar itself oh. so you can so instead of uh, hamburgers bees eat pollen patties yes yes think of it exactly think of it as a hamburger patty without the bread but super tasty for the bees they really love it so you oh. can always just place it on the top and put the lid back in so you've identified some of the compounds in the pollen that appear to be most beneficial to bees Yes, correct. So we are looking at some phytosterols, we are looking at important metabolites, phytochemicals, we are also looking at the protein and the lipid content of these pollens and not just pollens, we are also studying uh, the commercial diets that beekeepers buy from the market. We are also looking at different vegetable oils that beekeepers may tend to mix in their patties when they provide that to the bees. Well, why would they mix in other substances to the pollen? What what else could they put in to help the bees? So, uh, for example, in a in a patty that goes into a colony you can add i mean essentially what a bee needs is that it needs uh, proteins it needs lipids it needs vitamins salts uh, phytosterols you know phytochemicals and important metabolites so these are some of the macro and the micronutrients that bees need so when you form a bee patty to provide it to the bees we need to ensure that all of these components go in in the amounts that bees need macronutrients as the name suggests the bees of course require it in higher quantities micronutrients they are equally important even though the bees require it in smaller quantities so it's just to be able to balance it you know so you have some sugar going into the patty you have a lot of protein going into the patty you have either natural pollen or yeast or other forms of protein uh, substitutes that go into the patty you have lipids you have vitamins that go in to build that entire patty so naturally a bee would get uh, different types of pollen from different plants you know throughout the year correct um have you tried to take pollen from plants that grow throughout the whole year and put it all into a patty so that you know all year the bee is getting like a big diversity of plants or is it just fine to do seasonal patties that change over the year so uh, that's a great question actually so for a bee colony the seasonal uh, physiology changes because the seasonal requirements change so for example here when the bees go into uh, overwintering phase we call them the diutinous bees so they are uh, the longest living worker bees uh, the queens produce them towards uh, i would say beginning of fall to mid of fall and they last all the way through winter and they are ready to raise a new generation of baby bees the next spring so for example during that phase when the hive is ready to overwinter it needs a lot of carbohydrate stores it needs uh, honey in its frames it needs uh, sugar fondant or sugar patties in its frame those bees also need to be very well fed through the end of summer so they have enough protein and fat reserves within their body coming spring the bees are now definitely looking at more protein because they have to raise a new generation of brood so that is another phase when you really have to focus on proteins in mid summer uh, it's equal protein equal nectar so depending on the year uh, depending on the season of the year i think uh, the needs for the colony also changes so essentially what we really need to do is uh, be able to just ensure that if the colony is growing it has enough protein resources if the colony is about to overwinter it has been well fed through summer and then it is it is going into overwintering phase with enough sugar so if you do this ideally and you feed them ideally with the right mix at the right time how much Correct. more of a what are the metrics by which you measure the the health of the colony like how much better are they in, in what ways 
So there are many ways that you can measure the health of a colony. It all depends on what, you know, what you want to look at. For some, a healthy colony would be when you open up the hive, you take out a frame, you see really healthy brood, you see larvae, which are sort of swimming in, you know, brood food, what we call as worker jelly. You have a healthy queen who's laying a lot of eggs. You have good stores of pollen and nectar within the hive itself. So that's something that you could call as a healthy colony. You would see that the colony is gaining weight. The queen is producing a lot of brood. The, you, you can keep stacking up, you know, one box over the other to collect uh, the nectar flow and let the bees convert it into honey. So then those are good honey uh, making hives. You have uh, a colony where you can actually look at, for example, you can sample bees. You can look at bee physiology and you can say that these bees are healthy because their protein markers are elevated. So there are many ways that you can ascertain the uh, health of a colony, either through directly evaluating the colony, looking at different colony measurement parameters, or by looking at the physiology of the bees. Gotcha. Okay. I don't know. Have you tried this and have you been able to really like uh, get tremendous gains or like, like in terms of percentage of gain or health? I mean, how much better can you make things that you've observed? We, we actually have been uh, looking at uh, many aspects of this for uh, quite a few years now. We have been following some hives. Uh, you know, we work with stakeholders, both growers and beekeepers. So we have been, uh, for one particular project, for example, we have been following hives across multiple cropping systems. And we have been evaluating the colony health and we've been trying to see, for example, if they go to almonds, do they store enough pollen? Is the colony growing? If they, grow to, if they go to another crop, are they bringing in more nectar than pollen? What is happening to the colony? So we have been following these bees for a while and we have been also repeatedly sampling bees and we have been looking at their head protein contents. We have been looking at their abdominal lipid contents, trying to assess the individual bee physiology as well. And we have seen that with uh, sufficient pollen flow and with a diverse pollen flow, uh, these bees are healthier. Their head protein contents, their abdominal lipid contents are more uh, than bees sampled from areas where they don't have, have access to such nutrients. But of course, because the seasonal physiology changes, so we have to really compare apples with apples. So you only compare bees from the same seasonal physiology cohort with bees from another hive with limited access to nutrients, but from the same physiology cohort. Okay, so the big difference. What else? Um, so have you identified and have you been able to make isolates of, uh, of the, the compounds that you're seeking that would help bees health? Like are there, are there candidate plants that can be grown in mass and then, you know, the certain uh, phytosterols taken out of? Like what, you know, how would you go about making this a commercial type thing? So honestly, right now, what we are trying to initially look at is that, I mean, it still needs a lot of research. So I think maybe in the next four or five years, we might be in that position to actually uh, not only come up with like the whole database and continue to grow in uh, grow the database, but also come up with feasible recommendations. And potentially, I mean, we have been trying to work with a chemist in between, and we are uh, trying to work with a few collaborators, trying to seek, you know, which are the different sources from where we can extract these important phytochemicals and metabolites that we can add to bee diets. But I think when you think of the overall cost effectiveness and, uh, you know, the simple way of extraction, I believe still sourcing natural pollen or uh, maybe yeast 
or other forms of fungi, which might be richer sources of this pollen uh, of these phytosterols, it might be just easier to incorporate that into the diet rather than specifically trying to extract the chemical and add that to the diet. Well, right. I would, I would you know, for the micronutrients and everything else, I'm sure it'd be much better to, uh, you know, just take the pollen itself without you know, trying to extract things out of it. But you know, I guess commercial uh, endeavors they always want to you know, isolate things and boil it down to one substance or another, but I'm sure that's not nearly as good as getting everything in the pollen. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we have been, uh, we did conduct uh, quite a few experiments with phytosterols over the last two or three years. And to do it in lab or in a semi-field condition, we actually needed to source the purest form of this phytosterol. And we eventually found one company who was willing to customize that for us, but it wasn't cheap, I have to admit. So for a long-term uh, basis, I mean, if you look at it from a beekeeper's or a grower's perspective, it is not uh, feasible financially as well as time-wise. Does anyone, um, you know, I've heard like tomatoes are grown in, mm-hmm. in sometimes in gigantic greenhouses or warehouses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's certain vegetables that are grown in like indoor farms. Right. Um, do they do they ever have bees pollinate indoor farms? Do they do that or is there something that goes wrong in that kind of environment? No, bees, bees do pollinate uh, these uh, greenhouse uh, plants. But for tomatoes, for example, I think bumblebees are a better option because they are bus pollinators. So they're, uh, they can vibrate their body and that causes the pollen to dislodge, you know, from the flower itself. Oh, gotcha. For greenhouse pollination, often uh, bumblebees are, I would say, a much better source of pollinators than honeybees especially with plants like tomatoes, where you need to vibrate that flower, where you need to shake that flower to dislodge the pollen. But I mean, as a source of uh, pollen, are people looking at just outdoor methods of planting or are they looking at, you know, does anyone have a pollen farm, a gigantic pollen farm indoors where they're, you know, growing plants that especially are big, you know, pollen producers? Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. It's, it's. Is that uh, a viable idea or no, or why? Um, the amount of pollen that you would need to source. So there are two components to it. The first component is to be able to plant enough, uh, you know, plants to have enough flowers in bloom to collect all that pollen. And the second component is to actually collect the pollen. So one easy way to collect pollen is install these pollen traps on honeybee colonies. So there are different types of pollen traps. We are actually coming up with a manuscript uh, as we speak. Uh, to discuss the various uh, pollen trapping options in honeybee colonies. So one way to trap pollen, in fact, the easiest way would be if you know your hive is in a locality where it's bringing in a lot of pollen and there is a lot of pollen in the landscape, you can install a trap in front of it and let the bees do the work. So these pollen traps, they have these uh, narrow entrances where the bee has to, you know, sort of wriggle through it. And as it wriggles through the pollen trap to enter its colony, this trap dislodges the pollen that the bee has collected on its corbicula, on its legs. So, and underneath, there is like a little tray where these pollen uh, pellets are dropped into, and then you can just take the tray out and you can uh, use that as your pollen source. Uh, what yeah, but we- if you do that, though, won't that be robbing the bee of the pollen and then they go home with just nectar and no pollen on them? No, so this is one thing that we must keep in mind. So when you are collecting pollen, you have to make sure that the hive that you are trapping pollen from is a very strong and a healthy hive. It already has pollen resources within the colony and you are not trapping for pollen more than maybe a day or two from the same hive. So then you give it to hives that aren't doing that well? 
Yes. So if yes, give it to a hive that is not doing that well. Store it in your freezer to add it to your colony. Into you know, make it into patties. Uh, give it to your colony when there is a dearth in pollen. And uh, actually, for researchers like us, we also trap for pollen to first see what is the diversity of pollen that the bees are bringing back in. What are the different plant sources that are available around them in the landscape? And B, if we want to study pesticide residues from these pollens. that is another reason to trap pollen so whatever pollen the bees are bringing back in from the landscape we can collect that using the pollen traps we can send it to labs who are specialized in looking at pesticide residues and then we can have a spectrum of uh, what pesticides the bees have been exposed to in the landscape so it's like robin hood you steal from the the healthy rich hives <laughs> and gives to the poor right yes 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 i understand it lets you study Like you said, pesticides and the pollen, the nature of the of the plants it got it came from. Any surprises in your study of that data of pollen? What have you seen that uh, that was unusual to you that surprised you? Um, uh, there is this one uh, research area that we are currently looking into. It's uh, there is this particular group of fungicide called sterol biosynthesis inhibitory fungicide. So these SPI fungicides. they have been known to be phytotoxic and there are quite a few relatively recent studies which are show, which have shown that these fungicides can also adversely affect bees either they do it by themselves or they act in synergy with other pesticides for example neonicotinoids so one aspect that we are looking into is that you know these fungicides they were initially designed to prevent sterol biosynthesis in the fungal pathogen of plants but they are known to inhibit sterol biosynthesis in a lot of other different organisms insects are really uh, i would say insects are very crucial because they cannot biosynthesize their own sterols so for example sterols are really important for all insects including bees but because they cannot biosynthesize it they have to source these sterols from their diets so they need to find these sterols no matter what an insect eats that diet has to contain its critical sterols so that the insect itself can then metabolize it so for bees their important source of phytosterols are naturally plant pollens so what we are now trying to look at and what surprised us is that if we spray these fungicides on plants these fungicides may have the potential to alter the phytosterols of the plant pollen itself and thereby altering the bioavailability of the phytosterols to the bee so that is something that really caught us by surprise i mean these fungicides may have the potential i mean of course you know i'm just kind of giving you a very preliminary uh, sort of like insight into what we found but we are uh, continuing this theme of research and what we are trying to see is that if these fungicides they can actually alter the plant tissue and plant pollen and thereby alter what food sources are available to bees so that is another angle that i was mentioning that perhaps pesticides and poor nutrition might be interconnected with each other in more ways than i'm right. sure i'm sure they are yeah they alter the plants they alter the pests and the fungus that tries to grow in the plants so i'm sure they alter their uh, the plant's defenses and the you know the, it's i mean everything about the plant that would affect the bees that get pollen from it right correct and so the people is- that eat the plants too if they do Oh absolutely. I mean one thing I I often say to you know like everybody that I meet is that plant protection, you know, crop protection and bee protection, they are mutually inclusive. 
uh, growers need to be able to protect their crops as much as uh, beekeepers want to protect their bees. I think uh, that is the beauty of it, that both growers and beekeepers, they are working uh, hand in hand with each other. Just subtle changes, you know, to the time of spray, the, the duration of spray, how much a grower is spraying, what are the different tank mixes and formulations that go in to the field. A lot of uh, these, when you consider, when you put them into consideration, I think that there are ways where we can help protect our bees. And um, if you feed the bees well enough, if you give them a good enough nutrition, is there any resistance against varroa mites? Do they tend to, you know, be able to withstand their attack better? Or does it just make the varroa mites healthier too? <laughs> that is a great question. I mean, of course, if you just look at it, a healthy bee is better able to fight off, you know, the pesticide pressure, pests, parasites, and other diseases. The healthier the bee, the better the chances of fighting off other diseases and parasites and pests. For varroa mites, I believe uh, there are certain, so there is a lab who is now trying to look at uh, fungal extracts as potential miticides, if they could use that in the bee feed itself and uh, somehow help uh, counteract mite pressure as well as virus pressure. So there are ways that different research groups are trying to look into it. But I would assume that if your bee is healthy, coupled with, you know, you are uh, keeping an eye out for the mites, you are making sure that you are applying either natural or synthetic miticides, and you have a good handle on your colony, I think a well-nourished colony will be uh, able to better fight off mites as well. Yeah, it makes sense. And I know I can tell that, you know, mites aren't your big focus, but I just thought for a minute, in the pollen traps, does it does it shear off any mites? Do people find like varroa mites in the pollen traps too? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but that's a great question. Uh, the Oregon State Honeybee Lab actually does a lot of work on varroa mites. It's uh, just one of the many things that our lab does. So what happens is these mites, we need to understand their life cycle as well. So these mites, they, they latch onto a bee, right? And they are really good at sort of hiding between the tergites, you know, these segments on the bee abdomen. So they can sort of like sometimes go in between two tergites and even hide there. So what these mites do is that when this gravid female, she's ready to lay an egg, she can then quickly go into a mature larva cell, a brood cell. She's going to hide underneath all the brood food and the larva, and she's going to sit there. She's going to wait for that larval cell to be capped and the larva ready to go into the pupal space. So what happens is that as the bee pupa, it matures, the varroa mite completes its life cycle there itself. The female lays eggs, the eggs they hatch, they mature, they mate, and then the male mites and the immature uh, mites, they stay back in the cell and they perish. The initial mother mite, the foundress, she leaves with her new set of daughters. And then as soon as they emerge with the pupa, they are ready to latch onto the other uh, bees. So essentially, if they are being forced to go through the pollen trap, these bees might just very well hide between, uh, you know, the abdominal segments, the tergites, because these pollen traps, they are uh, designed to dislodge these pollen pellets from the bees' legs, the corbicula, the hind leg pollen basket where they collect these uh, pollen pellets. So when the bees trying to crawl through the pollen trap, it mostly dislodges the pollen pellets from its legs. And because mites are not naturally found in that region of the bee body, 
So there is a very high chance that the mite will not be dislodged because of the pollen trapping. And also you don't pollen trap every day, right? You only uh, trap for pollen for a very limited period of time uh, at a very limited uh, duration during the year. So I think for mite control, we need to think of alternatives. Well, what if you had a different trap design that you know they had a wriggle through, but it didn't affect their legs, but it affected their body. Maybe as they squeezed through it, it would squash the mites in between their plates, you know, or pull them out or cause them to leave. I just wonder if you could do something like that. The thought occurred to him. I mean, that is a great question. I am, I am not entirely sure you can do something like that. Trying to squish the mites between uh, the bee segments would essentially mean squishing the bee abdomen itself. Yeah, a little bit. I, I just wonder if you could, you know, get them off somehow. But, uh, well, that's for future research. Yes, absolutely. But that is... That would be a really cool study to look into, how to selectively dislodge the mites from the bee body. I mean, my, uh, bees do show grooming behavior. Hygienic bees, uh, there are bees which uh, they tend to groom each other for the mites. And if you place a sticky board underneath your the bottom frame of your hive, the bottom board, you can find uh, sometimes mites that have dis been dislodged there. So bees are pretty good if, if it's a, I would say if that trait, particular trait is present in the colony, bees will groom each other for mites. It's a lot like, you know, monkeys grooming each other for lice. I figured, yeah. I figured that they do that. Do they, when they groom each other, do they eat the mites or they just like kill them and pull them out or what do they do? They, they try and pull them out and dislodge the mites off the other bee. They try and sort of like, you know, they, there are uh, some mite biting behaviors that are known. So uh, in certain bees where they have this particular traits, they can try and dislodge the uh, mite from, you know, the bee body and then fight back by biting it. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it, it's all, you know, like tooth and claws. I mean, they, they yeah, yeah, yeah. try and employ as many defenses as they can. Does anything eat mites? Um, you mean like another organism that eats like, eats mite? Yeah, you know, the mites are living creatures. I'm sure they may have uh, predators that eat them or, you know, certain... I don't there, know. There some, bacteria uh, or aphids that eat them? There are uh, predatory mites. For example, Stratio lelaps. Uh, this is another, uh, it's sort of a predatory mite which has been shown to attack and uh, feed on varroa mite. So there are some predatory mites that are available. Has anyone tried to put those predatory ones into a hive? And maybe they won't bother the bees, but they'll, they'll eat the mites off of them and clear the, the hive of the mites and then, you know, leave. I'm, our lab has tried looking into it. There are also other labs in the U.S. who have uh, tried to employ predatory mites to counteract uh, varroa mites. It's it's also, you know, uh, depending on like, for example, uh, I would say, I think the mode of delivery is also something that we need to think of. How do we deliver these predatory mites in a hive? And, you know, how do we ensure that these predatory mites, they have a natural environment to breed to grow in numbers and also to successfully counteract the varroa mites so this is also another uh, i would say field of research that is really evolving at the moment what about the uh, microbiome of bees is anyone looking at that we are uh, there are uh, there are quite a few labs in the us who are looking at bee microbiome so we are also looking into it because gut microbiome and gut health is sort of goes you know hand in hand with bee nutrition so we did partner up with a microbiologist at Oregon State University, and we are looking into how commercial probiotics, they may help improve bee health. Uh, there are different commercial probiotics that are now available in the market. So what are the different bacterial species that are 
uh, present in these uh, commercial probiotics and how they can help improve bee health. So that is something that we are specifically looking into. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Priya, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research and your lab? Where can they go? To know more about what our lab does, you can uh, look up the Oregon State University Honeybee Lab website. To know more about me, you can look up my personal webpage, priyadarshanichakrabarti.com, or you can also look up my profile on the OSUB Lab webpage. Well, very good. Priya, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a, a fun call. Very cool. Thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.